Okay, so uh, let's take, I want to take you on this journey here. You can pull the monitors back. I want to take you on this journey in the text. So the way, in some of you, maybe you've been saved for 30, 40 years, and some, maybe you've been saved for a year or two, and, and you're not super familiar with the New Testament or how the flow works. Um, so if you know this already, it's okay, but just for sake of uh, a review for some, and maybe this is new for others, but the book of Acts is, is a synopsis. When you go to the New Testament, uh, the book of Acts lays out the first 30, 40 years of church history, right? So I, I personally believe church began, oh, I forgot to ask, are we, is it still live? It's working? Come on, say amen. <laughs> Woo, amen. I'm, I'm just thankful that, that that's, that's the case. Um, Facebook, welcome to the service for the first time in a month. No, uh, anyway, so the book of Acts is a 30, 40 year uh, really chronological historical narrative of, of what the first early church was. I believe it began on Pentecost. Uh, and some people believe it began with the disciples and whatever. I, me personally, I think that there's clearly like this definitive moment uh, where, and it almost seems like the reversal of the Tower of Babel, Cody, doesn't it? Uh, if you've read the Unseen Realm. But it, there's this moment of reversal when this was an exclusive uh, you know, you have the Jewish people, an exclusive monotheistic religion where they worshiped their God, and, and now it's not exclusive to Israel, and it's not exclusive to the Jew, and now the gospel is going to what? Every nation. It was like this exclusivity, this is our God, We're, we worship him, all of you are disinherited, all of you are horrible, all of you are pagan, and then the Lord leaves, the veil of the temple is rent, and he says, look, I'm going to come as the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to indwell believers of every tribe, of every tongue, of every nation. And so we have Jews from every nation here at Pentecost, and we see this, like, uh, this turning point, if you will, where now what was disinherited, now the gospel is and can be inherited by all the nations, right? So the book of Acts kind of talks through that story of the first 30, 40 years. So who was probably the most influential guy in bringing the gospel to uh, that lost world, non-Jew world? Huh? Peter was one of them. Who's the, who's the real guy, though, that was like, Peter's still focused on the Jews, but Paul was the guy who was like kicking the door open for the Gentiles. Paul was like, Let, let's, let's make this thing happen. So his epistles are largely... Uh, written to churches that were a conglomerate, not just Jews, right? Mostly Gentile people in their churches. Thank the Lord. We wouldn't have the gospel if it wasn't for him, right? Uh, which is important to know, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. What we do in this church, listen to me. Hey, what we do up in here is, is literally someone else's faith is hinging on this. How you read, how you grow, how you adapt to what God has for your life is literally a hinge pin for someone else's eternity. And Paul, Paul understood that, right? So just understanding the New Testament, when you read the book of Acts, it's a story of that 30, 40 years. And so the Pauline epistles will fit into that narrative at some point. Does that make sense? At some point on Paul's missionary journeys, he wrote the book, the letter to 1 Thessalonians, 2, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians to the church at Thessalonica. So when we go to the book of Acts, we're going to go to the spot at Paul's missionary journey when Luke penned that moment when he engaged with this new faith community that was started in Thessalonians. So that's the purpose of us going to Acts to read the narrative as it happened on his missionary journey. And then we're going to go back to 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and that's where we're going to be for at least a few weeks, maybe a month, okay? Deal? All right, thank you. Let's dig in. Acts chapter 16, verse 6 through 10. Let's read here. And I'm going to read a little bit from, I don't do this often, but I'm going to read a large portion in Thessalonians from one of my other Bibles, uh, and you'll see why here in a minute. So Acts 16, 6 through 10, but if you don't have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen. Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia, I could be murdering the pronunciation, I'm not sure, in uh, Galatia, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost. Don't miss this. I, I mean, this is just, I, I'm, getting, I'm already getting happy about what I'm about to read here. Now, when, when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia, 
and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them what? Not. And they passing by Mysia came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. He had too many Doritos. You know what I'm saying. That's right. We had one of them nights last night, didn't we? We were like, I mean, when it, when it happens, you're just rummaging through the cabinets. I'm like, anything I can get my hands on. That was last night. And this morning, I had visions. No, I'm kidding. So a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia. This is a pivotal moment. And prayed him saying, come over into Macedonia. And what does it say? Help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Paul had originally wanted to return to Asia Minor to the churches that he had established on his first missionary journey. So where are we in Acts chapter 16? And we're about to go to 17. In this story, I'll just give it to you in a nutshell. Paul had already had his first missionary journey. He had already gone to Asia Minor and, and in those nations established churches on his first missionary journey. And what we're reading is that at this point in his ministry, he was getting ready to go back. The, this, this, these letters are not prison letters. These were not written. Galatia w was where he first started. We believe that Galatia was, Galatians is the first letter that he has written, and now 2 Thessalonians would be the second and third. So understanding that he already had done a gospel work in Asia Minor, and he was going to go back there to continue to disciple those churches that he had already started. So here's what I'm getting here. Here's what, here, here's what I'm seeing. He was doing a good work. Paul, Paul had it already figured out. Paul had it all lined up. He had it all laid out. His calendar was set. His iPhone was locked in. All right, guys, let's go back. It's time. We're going to roll out to, to those churches that we started. We're going to go back, and we're going to dig in and disciple those churches more. And what happened? He receives a, vi a vision. First of all, I want to say some of you have been faithful for years and years and years. Some of you have been serving for years and years and years, but it is vitally important that we do not dismiss the Holy Spirit in our service because at any point in time, God could say, go this way. And at any point in time, many of you would be like, Pastor Matt, what, like this moment in our church, what are you doing? We're doing just fine, we're sailing just, no we're not. I mean, I wasn't eating Doritos, but we got a vision and we're moving forward. Can anybody testify about what's happening in Bethlehem as to what happened here? It, it, it is true. The Lord, we're not saying that we weren't doing a good enough work. God doesn't call the people who aren't doing a good work to go do a good work. He calls the people that are already doing a good work to go do a better one, to go do something else. He, he equips and he moves those people that are already serving and doing. So, so, so don't get super attached with what exactly you're doing. When you go on, and it's even applicable in this, when you go on the website, when you go on the website <laughs> and you click Teams and you click a spot, Look, the Lord may move you. You might not be there forever in that one spot, but when you're there, own it until he moves you. But we see here this trend that he was ready to go back to Asia Minor, and that was his desire to, to continue to disciple those churches. And the Lord says, no, I'm gonna take you to Europe. We're gonna, we're gonna change passports here. We're gonna, we're gonna change directions, change tickets, if you will. And we're gonna go to this place. So originally to Asia Minor, now he's headed to Europe. I think what's interesting here that I, I want to draw out is it says that the Holy Spirit prevented him. You know, it's not just, once again, I'm hitting this kind of from a different angle, but it's the same idea. The Holy Spirit doesn't just keep you from sin. I think so often we don't ask for direction in the good things that we're doing either because we just automatically assume that everything's okay. Are you getting the implications there? When was the last time you asked the Lord to lead you in your spiritual walk and in your journey? No, that's just a place where I check in and check out. 
I just ask him to keep me from sin. Well, no, he'll keep it fresh in your spiritual walk as well. Instead, Paul is directed to Europe. He would pass through, think about this. This is what's so weighty about this is, is I, I think this is great. Considering that he's already had a first missionary journey, he's already laid down some, some good gospel work in Asia Minor. When he goes to Europe, think about the churches that are established. Philippi, the book of Philippians. Like, I mean, it's so rich. That church was used to financially contribute, to give encouragement. The theme of Philippians is joy. He would, he would, after this vision, go through Philippians, go through Philippi first and establish a church there. Man, think about what the Lord will do when he changes, when he changes direction. So he goes through and he establishes a church in Philippi. And then he would travel through Amphilia and several other towns that had no gospel work and then would settle in at Thessalonica where there was a synagogue. It was always Paul's custom to go to the synagogue first when he reached a new community uh, where he was going to plant a church. There's, there's several implications and several reasons why he would do this. But first, first and foremost, this is something Jesus did. Jesus went to the synagogue first. He came into his own. And then his own received him not. So maybe it was more of a rite of passage for Paul. Some people believe that it was just the fact that he could get an audience quickly. As he, you know, as a Hebrew, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law blameless in his own testimony. Paul, it was an easy place for him to walk up into the synagogue and say, hey, let me bring a message. And of course, they didn't like the message, right? But we see that he chose, even passing through some communities uh, that were connected to Thessalonica, he chooses Thessalonica because there's a synagogue there. And he begins his ministry there. So he, he goes there first, and he teaches. Now go to Acts 17, 1 through 5. Acts 17, 1 through 5. It'll be on the screen if you need it. So Paul uh, receives a vision, changes plans, changes direction. Heads not, not going back to his first missionary journey churches. He decides to go plant new churches, a new work, sees this Macedonian man. And when he passes through these places, he heads towards Thessalonica. Look at Acts 17, 1 through 5. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis... And Apollyon, they came to Thessalonica. There was a synagogue of the Jews, as, and Paul, as his manner was, right? As his manner was, went in unto them. And three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs to have suffered. That was popular, wasn't it, in the synagogue? <laughs> anyway, not really. And, and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is what? The Christ. Come on. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas. And of the devout Greeks, a great what? So watch this. Some of them believed. But then also, what? A, a great multitude of, of Greeks. Would they have been in the synagogues? Probably not. Okay. And of the chief women... Not a what? Not a few. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. So some suggest that the three Sabbaths here mentioned in, in, in his ministry that he had to the Jews before moving on to the pagan Gentiles, that, that they would receive his message. Some, some think that that three Sabbath days is exclusive to his ministry there in that synagogue. And I think that that makes perfect sense. Reading the book of Acts, glossing over the story, it's like, okay, how does he establish a church in three Sabbath days? Maybe three weeks, right? How's he going to, like, get that locked in and then write these books of what we're about to read, which is amazing things, in three weeks? It's because the book of Acts is not, Luke is not expressly saying he was only there for three Sabbath days. He's saying, many believe, that the, that was the amount of time that he spent exclusively in the synagogue. What we're going to see, it's amazing, is that the apostle Paul in Thessalonica, he actually works his secular job. Some people believe he was a tent maker. Some people believe he, was, uh, he worked with leather. Um, but we're going to see that he contributed uh, to his his financial solvency and wherewithal there in Thessalonica to be easy on them. And then also he receives two different offerings from Philippi. So my point in, in all of this is that he was there for two to three months. 
we, we develop this thought process not just uh, by way of reading First and Second Thessalonians, but by seeing this passage that he was there for a little bit of time and, and had to be for this great group of Gentiles to come to know Jesus, right? So he comes to know Jesus, they come to know Jesus, but then as these Gentiles are like digging in and they're getting excited about the gospel, what happens? The Jews that didn't believe in the first three weeks that he was ministering in the synagogue, what happened? They got jelly, right? They were like, "Uh uh-uh, I don't think so. Look at this movement. Look at what God is doing in the hearts and lives. People were, I'm sure, uh, receiving direction and healing and things in their life that they had never seen before. And what happens? They, They go to basically the bad side of town and they get some people to go in there and rough them up and run them out of town. Isn't that crazy? So, but my point in all of this is that Paul was probably in Thessalonica two to three months. So this is crazy. What we're about to read, the letter that we are about to engage in, because we're going to do both of them, but First Thessalonians, is a letter to people that only had two to three months of the gospel. So, so these are going to be fresh Christians in the faith. Can, it, can you guys see that with me? So as we dig in, I want to encourage you, not only are we going to see how Paul reacts and how he explains himself to them with his conduct in chapter 2, but we're going to see what kind of groundwork a new believer can make if they're devoted to the things of God. And so for some of you, this will be like, hey, do you remember what it was like when you first got saved? Maybe you should think about that a little bit more. Maybe you should go back to those moments when you first found God, when he first found you, when that relationship first began. And we're going to see, this is amazing, we're going to see what and how that new believer interacts. And I think, I think it's going to be a blessing to you. But let me give you a little bit more on this area, and I think it's important as we're beginning this series. So much of the above can be explained with the fact that this was a young, very zealous church. Okay? The commentators are, are pretty aligned in this, that what we're going to read in these two books are a very young, very zealous church. Uh, so Paul, accompanied with Silas and Timothy, planted this church, dug in, and then bailed after two to three months. Um, of course, Luke stayed back in Philippi um, and, and did not accompany them to um, Thessalonica. But things to note about the city, there were a few, four different types of people that were in this city. Uh, and I think that we kind of see it there in the book of Acts. Y'all, y'all doing okay? Y'all doing all right? How many like to learn a little bit about the text? Anybody? Okay, about three of you. God bless. The rest of you just hang on. I'll be to the meat of the message here in a minute. All right. It's going to be okay. Uh, I think this stuff is the greatest ever. I love it. Love studying it. So four types of people, barbaric Germanic folk that were pagans. So in this city, many believe it was like 200,000 people, right? So at the top of the Aegean Sea, I think I I wrote it here, yeah. The Thermaic Gulf, a port city on the Aegean, the head of the Thermaic Gulf, originally named Therma. I thought this was kind of cool. Originally named Therma because there were hot springs, natural hot springs in this city. And they would literally, people would come from all around to receive healing that these hot springs would bring them as they would go and dip in the jacuzzis, you know what I'm saying? Um, And there were different types of healing around that, holistic healing that this area was known for. But you have a melting pot, 200,000 people. You have a reason, you have Roman like retired Roman citizens. Why? Because Ignatius Way ran right through this city. So essentially, uh, Romans would retire. If you think about it, here's, you know, we're in Greece, Thessalonica, you got Italy right over here. So they're just going to travel right over down Ignatius Way, and they're going to chill in the hot springs, right? So you got uh, this Arizona-type place where uh, retired Roman citizens are coming and chilling. You got a, a group of them. You have Jews from the east that were uh, monotheistic that brought their uh, staunch religion into, uh, in, into the picture here uh, and, and tradition. And then you have Greeks from Achaia that were educated that were also involved here. So you have barbaric pagan worshipers. You got educated Greeks. You got retired Romans. And then you got these... Uh, you know, stout Orthodox Jews, you know what I mean, that were just there, uh, you know, squares. Anyway, so you get the point, right? There, here's all these people. Um, cut that out of the live. Just kidding. I don't think you can. So there was a lot going on. 
Now watch this. Can you see why Paul chose this spot? It's the hot springs. I knew it. Paul was like, I'm going there. I'm getting in the jacuzzi. This is going to be amazing. If y'all want to hear about the gospel, you know where I'm going to be. No, anyway, it wasn't that major. But the point is, is like there were people from all different places. And this Ignatius way, think about it. If he spreads the gospel in a place that travel was easy and it was accessible, what's going to happen with the gospel? People are going to get it and it's going to go. This dude was so smart. He, he, I love Paul. I love studying him. So he's no slouch. He does this, picks this city, first of all, because there was a synagogue there, but because of 10 other million reasons, right? This was the spot for him to be. Okay, all right, so let's jump in. Go to, uh, okay, I want to I share this with you. Go to chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. I'm so, yeah, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is kind of a different thing for me to do, um, but I think you'll get it. I think you'll see why. Or you might not, and you'll be like, yeah, that was weird. <laughs> see, they got any coffee left? Yeah. How we doing? You all doing okay? I'm just living my best life up here. Amen. So we're jumping in. We've made our way to this, this book, this letter. What do we know so far? We know this is his second missionary journey. We know that he's headed to Europe. He's gotten to this place after he's already established a gospel church and work in Philippi. He's only there for two to three months, and he gets run out of town. But he writes a letter, and he says, hey, the work that he did in that two to three months, it was, it was good. It was big. Stuff happened. People got saved. The gospel was proclaimed. And Paul is reaching back out to them because he's not able to go back. He's not able to come back to them, and we're going to see uh, why that is. But I think it's interesting that Paul, when addressing them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he starts off where it's like this prayer, this prayer of thanksgiving for them, which is pretty typical for Paul in, in chapter 1, and we'll go back. But chapter 1 is really about he's thankful for what God did in their life and who they are and how their relationship with the Lord is flourishing. But then in chapter 2, he turns and kind of talks about his own conduct. He talks about his own reasoning with why he did what he did. And so before we get to what a new, I, I think I have it written here, uh, key elements of a new believer. That's how we're going to end today, so relax. Uh, the key elements of a new believer is what we're going to end with. Before we get there, Paul kind of gives a little bit of his why. He gives a little, a little bit of his background of, of why he came here, of why it was so serious to him, and, and kind of anchors his testimony here in chapter 2. So I want to start in chapter 2, and then I want to work my way from there. Okay, so let's read this all together, chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, look at it. And I'm reading from a different version, so I don't have to take the time to explain it, okay? That's why. And then the rest of it will be back in, in the uh, King James where it's, I have to explain it. Okay. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse number 1. For you yourselves, and it will be up on the screen, yeah. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without what? It was not without result. Like, things happened. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were, and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of our great opposition. For our exhortation didn't come from error, watch this, or impurity, or an intent to what? Deceive. I'm going to come back to that, but it, that's some good stuff right there. Instead, just as we have been approved by God, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please people, but rather God, who examines what? Our hearts. For we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness, and we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. Although we could have been a burden of, as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you, as a nurse nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you, that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you had become dear to us. For you remember our labor and our hardship, brothers and sisters. He's kind of laying it out there. 
You, you see what I mean? He's letting them know what he went through. I, I think so often we don't think about this from a leadership's perspective, what the leader goes through to carry the gospel. So Paul, Paul defends himself. We cared so much. For you remember our labor, working night and day at the end of verse 9, so that we would not burden any of you, right? We preach the gospel, God's gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devotely, righteously, and blameless we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each of you to live worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And then he kind of transitions to their reception of it. This is why we constantly thank God. Because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of who? God. Which also works effectively in you, in, in, in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, become, what's that next word? We're going to come back to that. Of God's church in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, since you have also suffered the same things from people of your own country, just as they did from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us. They displeased God and are hostile to everyone by keeping us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. He's explaining the story, right, of what, we ha of what has happened, and we've already talked about it. As a result, they are constantly filling up their sins to the limit, and wrath has overtaken them at last. But as for us, brothers and sisters, after we were forced to leave you for a short time in person, not in heart, we greatly desired and made an effort to return and see you face to face. So we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and time again. But what does it say? Satan hindered us. We'll stop there. Here's what I want you to understand. Stay with me. Paul defends his conduct and motives in his ministering here in chapter 2. He defends his conduct and motives right here in chapter 2. You know there are times as a pastor that I feel like I have to defend my conduct. I understand why he did what he did. There's many times that things are called into question, right? That, that people are uneasy. But Paul knew rightly, and he's expressed it in other passages of Scripture, that who was hindering him? Satan. It wasn't something that he was defending his conduct and ripping this person or telling them. And he did that a little bit in another passage. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. So Paul wasn't opposed to it, <laughs> but he didn't expressly do it here. And the point is, is he valued his work so much and what he did, he took it seriously. He knew it was the Lord's work that he was willing to go to bat and say, listen, let me explain something to you. I sacrificed. I worked night and day so that I didn't have to hit you in the pocket, and we're going to see it more. I'm not asking you to sacrifice and do something that I wasn't unwilling to do myself. But more than that, I want to point something out that I think is literally what's killing us as a church as a whole. When we go about our gospel calling, we must remember that the enemy is constantly in opposition. Ultimately, we are opposing spiritual forces when we engage in gospel ministry. Did you see that in the text? Come on now. We are opposing spiritual forces. I know every day when I get up and get out of bed and put my feet hit the floor, I know that my battle is not with flesh and blood. I know that my battle is with principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world. That's why I engage on a spiritual, a spiritual level with the Holy Spirit. When I teach, when I train, when I encourage, when I exhort... I am opposing the forces of darkness. When I talk with you, when I counsel others, when I refrain from sin, when I read my Bibles, when I pray, when I do the work of the ministry, I'm opposing spiritual forces. Yeah, I'm engaging with you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, but I know that it is literally on another supernatural level, and so did Paul. I want to draw your attention to something before we move on to their behavior. Look at verse 3 in chapter 2. I'm going to read this in the King James. I think it's better there. And then I think I'll be there the rest of it if I can get there. Look at this. this is, look at chapter 2, verse number 3. I think it's on the screen, but I'm uh, having trouble with these pages. Cody got me my journal Bible and not my preaching Bible. That's okay. Good heavens. Maybe I should just stop and read it off the, off the screen. Or should I stick with it? There it is. Look at verse number three. Oh, my goodness. 
can't move on without saying this. I'm gonna ruffle your feathers a little bit. You all right with that? Y'all got steel-toed boots on this morning? I hope so, because I'm about to step on your toes a little bit. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, when Paul is talking about his code of conduct in ministry, look at it. He says, for our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of, what's that next word? Uncleanliness, uncleanliness. The, 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 The deceit is the fact that there were false teachers that were prevalent. And guess what? There's false teachers that are prevalent today. What is something that goes hand in hand with false teachers? Uncleanness. You know what that word in the Greek talks about? Sexual impurity. Sexual impurity. Think about it. In a melting pot with pagan cultures, what do they do when they go to worship at their temple? They engage in what? Sexual acts. Paul understood he was who he was talking to. You know what I think the Church of America needs to do? They need to understand that we may not have like these sexual orgies in our churches. It may be, and I understand, I think there's your children in here a little bit, uh, just little ones you don't know yet. <laughs> we, we, we may not have, watch this, we, we may not have these crazy orgies in here like it was in those pagan cultures. We may be churched up enough to where we look good on the outside and we keep it on the low, but sexual impurity is still real in the church. It's a problem. If I could count, I mean, it's unbelievable how many of my mentors have fallen into sin. People that were training me, people where I went to college, people where I worked in ministry, people that I looked up to, guess what? It's funny how deceit goes with uncleanness. It's funny how those things go together when you have this perspective, when you have this vision of where we're going with the gospel. If there is deceit, there's probably sexual impurity that goes with it, and in my experience, there is. And if you feel like someone's being dishonest, you should look into it. And if they are not vetted, if there is things that have been explained and everything is on the up and up, then move on with the work. But I'll say this, it's just as important for you to understand that Paul was calling them to that level of conduct. And listen, as the church, sexual immorality, fornication is a sin. I think it's, Sarah and I talk about it often, but you know, how we are raising our children is different than the way the world raises their children. We are, I mean, it, is, it will be abstinence in our home. My daughter's not going to be running around. My son's not going to be running around. And if he is, there's going to be consequences. What are those consequences? I don't know yet. I'm going to figure it out. But watch this. Here's what's important as a parent. We're not asking our children to do anything, guess what, that we didn't do. We were married virgins. It's lost today, isn't it? What's something that you can use to measure your pastor's solvency, to measure your pastor's vision? Is your pastor right sexually? Is he faithful to his wife? Which was a requirement for a bishop that Paul outlined in another passage of scripture. You have my commitment that I will stay faithful to my wife, that I will stay faithful as far as to impure thinking, to looking at pornography, to looking at things that are not, that should not be looked at and viewed by anyone, much less a Christian. I'll protect myself in those ways. Why? Because it goes hand in hand with pagan culture, not with the holiness of God. You can't lead in ministry. And Paul, in just a two to three month stint of of not even getting to disciple them, he said, listen, to, do you notice the difference in our church versus theirs? We required sexual purity. It's got to be said. Okay, moving on. <clears throat> Paul was met with opposition because he came in the name of the Lord and he was doing it the right way. We must conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of our calling. Let me say that again. We must conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of our calling. And this is, of course, on the level of the leadership. 
but it flows down. And listen to me, I'm not trying to beat you up. I just think it's important that you understand that we have boundaries and that we guard ourselves and that we don't cross certain lines. We just don't. And if we did, my resignation will be on the pulpit and that'll be the last week I preach. End of story. I'm not, this, this thing of, I've seen men of God cover stuff up. It's just not okay. I've never been in this for the paycheck. If I was in it for a paycheck, I'd be doing something else. It's just not the case for me. But I, I put a premium. And when I talk to your children, when I talk with you, when I counsel in marriage counseling, when I say you shouldn't be having premarital sex, you should be keeping things straight. And listen, and I understand people make mistakes, but I'm telling you things that can be done. Why? Because we did it. Have confidence. If you don't have confidence in your own faith to do it, have confidence in your pastor for a little while until you get there. It's okay. And here's the other thing. If we confess our sin, he's faithful. I'm not telling you something that is a, literally, if you messed up, there's no turning back. Absolutely not. There are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ that are here that have had a testimony of an immoral past that have literally gotten victory over that and they find purity in the Lord, and they are some of the closest, dear friends, brothers and sisters in Christ that I have to this day. If you have fallen, don't let the devil convince you that there's no future for you in your relationship with the Lord. God is faithful. He, his blood is there to cover your sin, not to act like they don't exist. He knows who we were, but I think it's important not to let this watered down, well, it's just a sin like any other. <laughs> God bless and we'll forget. No. No, it's not. It's, it's, there's consequences that come from that. And it's going to screw you up and it's going to screw your kids up. Let's be holy. Let's be right. Let's be faithful. It's a prerequisite for what I'm about to say. Okay? All right, all the heavy stuff's over with. Now let's talk about a new believer's faith. All right, ready? Let's go back to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look at verse number 6. Verse number 6. I got about four minutes to finish this up. And that's totally not going to happen. Look at verse number six. Knowing brethren beloved, that's verse four. I'm going to go to verse number six now. And ye, <laughs> and ye became, what's it say? Followers. I love this. I, I'm just, what I'm about to tell you just made me smile inside. The Greek word there is mimites. Mimites. Can you think of a word that we could get from that? Mimites. Mimic. That's where it comes from. And ye became followers. Watch this. And ye became imitators. But wait a minute, that's pharisaical. Thank you for bringing that up. You're right. I thought imitating, I I thought cloning, I thought that type of behavior is not good in the church. We need to be real. Yes, absolutely. And Paul is going to define what is the difference between an imitator in a follower sort of way and an imitator in a pharisaical sort of way. You ready for it? Go to verse 14 in chapter 2. Same thing. I think it's verse 14. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For ye brethren became, what's it say? Guess what? It's the same word. But this time it says followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. What, then, then keep reading with me. For ye have suffered. <laughs> Look at verse number six again, chapter one. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much. All right, I'm, I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you three things today that if you'll take them, internalize them, they're going to change your life. I'm going to hit the reset button on what it means to be a new believer. We've laid a ton of groundwork today. I could probably stop and give this to you next week, but I'm not. The point is, is like Paul meant business. Do we see this? Because of all of Paul's work, effort, energy, ultimately, right, he yielded to the Spirit of God and plowed this path. What happened? What happened is what we're about to read. In two to three months, a thriving church was established. Not really a discipled church. They were zealous. They were, you know, ready to get after it. But he was only there for two to three months. But we see the positive nature of what happens in a true new believer's life. 
And there's three things in this passage that just jumped out at me, and I think they'll be helpful for you. The first thing he says is this. Number one, and this is the difference between a, a Pharisee and a true follower. Number one, a key element of a new believer, receive hard times and don't reject them. <laughs> Mimites, you have become a follower. Paul says, if you understand that I got my tail kicked in Philippi, they just ran us out of town. I got to you. I was like, boom, here's the map. Let's make this thing happen. Three Sabbath days in the synagogue. They didn't receive it. You might want to turn me down a little bit. They didn't receive it. And then at that point, they, uh, uh, I, I just kept plowing through. And then it was all about the Gentiles. And, man, you guys came to know Jesus. And then what happened? They ran us out again. But guess what? Paul says, I noticed this. Not too much. Make sure you're good online. He, he, he says, I noticed this. You became an imitator of that. And what really showed it was how you handled the affliction. You see, we're after in church. The discipleship that we think is, did they cut their hair? Do they dress better? Their mouth, are they still cussing? As all of those things are important, what does Paul point out first? You guys have become imitators. You've become followers. The Greek word, you're, you're mimicking the way. This is the way <laughs> for all my Star Wars fans. You, you have literally adopted this path. Why? How do I know that? Because of the way you're handling suffering. So weighty. <laughs> Gotta have a fit. Listen, receive hard times, don't reject them. How many want to be a true follower of Jesus? Let me help you. When something hard comes into your life, watch this. Receive it. I've been praying for God to take it. I've been praying for God to throw it away. I've been praying for a better life. Listen, mimic Paul in this. Understand that there is such a greater reason for you to receive the thing that God is bringing to you, and that is what will propel the gospel. Some of you are trying to give the very thing away that God has been trying to give you to receive. All you have to do is grab it. I've come across people that have, have literally had some life-wrecking things in their life, and it has wrecked their life. I've also come across some that have had life-wrecking, life-altering things in their life that have happened, that they have embraced it, and they have been closer to the Lord ever since. What is the first sign of a true new believer? You receive the affliction. You don't reject it. Why is that different? The Pharisees, <laughs> they were all about the shine, right? Not the substance. The substance of the word of God, the substance of the gospel, at the very bedrock of it is the fellowship, Paul said, of Christ's sufferings. How are we doing as a church? As we learn from this baby church, here's how we know. Here's how we calibrate. How are you doing with suffering? Some of you, literally, you are going through unbelievable Incredible, weighty things. Watch, embrace it. He's there with you. Cast it on him. That's not a kid kicking and screaming upset because he didn't get his way. That's someone entering into the oak with Jesus. Receive hard times, don't reject them. Number two, look at verse nine. I'll, I'll be quick. Look at verse nine. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. And how ye, what's it say? Turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The second thing I see, a key element of a new believer, receives hard times, doesn't reject them. Redirect your efforts of living into a life of serving. Redirect your efforts of living into a life that's serving. This place, Thessalonica, was a place for living. It was a place for travel. It was a place for indulgence. It was a place to make money. And Paul said, you literally turned your lives from living the way that you wanted to live when you got to this town, and you redirected to a life of serving the king of kings. You went from a life of 
believing in all polytheism, all these other gods, to serving one. Here's the thing. I feel like in our context of America, we're still living for stuff. We're still striving. As a new believer, can I let you off the hook on something? You don't have to have that new car. You can have it. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. Watch this. Your kids don't have to go to that college. Let's, let's know. You don't have to get that promotion. You don't have to. Let me help you with something. Every life decision you have is a choice. Does that make sense? You're living and running for something. But when you're living to serve, then God gives you things to steward. It doesn't become the end result. It becomes something that is equipping you to serve him better. When you have to have something, then you and God are struggling in life. When you serve God, he gets and gives, and it's an open-handed transaction. Everything, like, we talk about it often. It's, it's amazing when you live like this. Paul said the key element of a new believer is redirect your efforts of living for something, watch this, to a life of serving. Then those things that you have contribute to the gospel and they don't become something that's overwhelming you to have more. Paul learned, Paul said this, I have learned in what? Whatsoever state I am. I know how to have and how to have not. The point is not having and having not. The point is serving. When we say go click teams, find us teams, find a spot, serve in your church, it, it's because we're trying to give you an outlet to buy in to what God is doing. When you figure it out, Paul's saying this, you guys figured this out so quick. You're not living for that 40-hour-a-week thing. You're living for Jesus, and the byproduct of that 40-hour-a-week thing is that you can serve Jesus more, is that you can share your faith. Your life has gone from these are my goals to you are my goal, whatever, whatever it is. That doesn't mean I'm lazy. That doesn't mean I don't manage my finances. That doesn't mean I give everything away. That means I live and do whatever you tell me to do with it. I steward it by serving you. Do you understand my, the difference? What I'm saying is, is you can tell a difference for somebody who just comes to church, clocks in, clocks out to do a duty, to go back and live the life that they are living versus someone that this is who they are. And that transfers and translates and transcends their work, their job, their relationship, their finances. Does that make sense? Paul says, <laughs> let me read it again, verse 9. For they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had unto you. How ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is like they redid their whole lives in two to three months. If the devil's lying to you this morning and he's got you and he's holding you for something, know that whatever that thing is, is something that you can give God lordship over and it will no longer control you. Just a thought. Number three, last thing. Oh my goodness gracious. I bit off a little bit more than I could chew. Reinstate your, fo oh, this is just, this is it. We're landing the plane. Reinstate your focus from what is now to what is coming. Look at verse number 10. And to wait for his who? Son from where? Heaven. Whom he hath raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. And to wait for what? Wait, 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 wait. Go to the end of chapter 2. For what is our, verse 19, for what is our what? Our what? Joy. Or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Okay, all right, this is it. Let's, let's do, Jim, we'll do communion next week for this group. You guys are going to be without communion this week. I want to finish this point. We'll do communion next week. Follow me here. Reinstate your focus from what is now to what is coming. You watch how this builds. 
You receive hard times, you don't reject them. You redirect your efforts from living to serving. And watch this, the culmination of all of this is you reinstate your focus from what is to what is coming. In two to three months, this little congregation, follow me here, literally went from being focused on what they had going on to what was coming. If the church of God, this is what happens in a new believer's life. If the church of God would just get focused on what's coming instead of what is, it would be easier to serve. It would be easier to be focused. Do you understand what I'm saying? This was a church that was consumed, and Paul had to address it and rein him in a little bit because the same thing that happens today. There was all these mixed thoughts on what it was going to look like, Jesus' second coming, and what happens to people when they die. And we'll address that in the coming weeks, but here's the point. Paul was like, you guys get it. The Lord is coming, and you're the apple of his eye. You're the reason why he's coming. So why would we ever focus on what is when we know what's coming? Does that make sense? Do you remember what it was like when he found you? Where were you? Where were you when you got saved? Maybe this morning, the Lord's revealing to you that you've never put your faith and trust in him. Maybe you're watching online and you've, you don't have a relationship with the Lord. What do I see in these new believers? I see a willingness to, to march into anything. I see a willingness to serve no matter what. And I see that here in Bethlehem. Why? Because we are God's glory. We are God's joy. I, I think it says there's no greater joy than to hear that my children, what? Walk in truth. We can experience that now by focusing on what's coming. You know, the election what is doesn't really matter because of what's coming. Do you understand? Every head bowed, every eye closed.